This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book under the covering title of Christian Fundamentals, the subsection Redemption, and now number three of the consequences of redemption. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together and those of you who are listening to this recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a moment or two while we read the second epistle of Peter, chapters 1 and 2. And some dreadful things said in those two chapters, but they are part of the scriptures that are written for our guidance. I would like you just to notice, if you will, I dare say you have seen it, in chapter 1, we have in verses 3 and 4 these words, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. So as a, a divine power is behind the gift to enable you to have a life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him that hath called us unto glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So, resting on these precious promises, you become partakers of the divine nature, and so escape the corruption. Now if you look at chapter 2, verse 19, while they promise them liberty, these are not great and precious promises, these are empty promises. They themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, the same is he brought in, into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than at the beginning. What a shocking state of affairs. It is a travesty of the truth. Now you look at the last word. The sow that was washed has returned to a wallowing in the mire. So you see, there's no change in nature. If you wash a sow ever so well, it doesn't matter whether you use ordinary sunlight soap or some of the most scented soap, when it's all done, she's a sow still. And as a sow will go back to wallowing in the mire. These are searching words, aren't they? If you read the first epistle, it says, the others have returned not to wallowing in the mire, but returned to the shepherd and bishop of their souls. A shepherd looks after sheep. A swineherd looks after sows. I don't, wouldn't like to call these other folks who are so far gone from the truth as swineherds. We must let the word of God do that for us. Well now, this is our third uh, study dealing with that great subject of justification by faith. And unless the person who heard me say that knows that it's but a part of a long series dealing with Christian fundamentals, they would consider it temerity on my part to think that in three studies I could encompass the teaching of Scripture on such a mighty theme. But there must be some element of proportion, otherwise we should go on so many weeks on justification by faith that the other features which are waiting for us would either be never reached or of themselves be crowded out. This evening, I'm starting our study by a quotation from two poets. 
One poet is, in the estimation of good many, the greatest poet in the English language, and the other poet I'm quoting from, I do not even know his name. Well, it doesn't matter. Now, the words I first of all quote are these. Words to the heat of deeds, too cold breath gives. They were said in a tragic context, but they're true. Words to the heat of deeds, too cold breath gives. The intent and not the deed confounds us. If I say stand, or sit, or sleep, or wake, and nobody does anything, those words fall to the ground. A word is only completed when it turns into a deed. He spake, and it was done. He said, let there be light. There was light. So, unless that which is confessed, that which is acknowledged in words, is translated into living deeds. They're empty. The other piece of poetry is this. I'm not giving you the whole length of it. It's going through all the various passages in Scripture in verse form of the way which justification comes to the sinner. By faith, by grace, by the shed blood of Christ, and so on. And he sums it up in these two small verses at the end. Now, if you doubt that I am Christ's, if one suspicion lurks, I'll show by deeds that I am his. I'm justified by works. I praise the Lord, tis all of him. The grace, the faith, the blood, the resurrection power, the works. I'm justified by God. And I think he's touched the spot there. The whole lot, whether it be by faith without works or works manifesting faith, must all come from God, but they're there in the book. And so this evening, we are turning away from the stress that we've been obliged to give, that justification is by faith without the works of law or without the works of any kind, to the other side of the story, that if there are no works, it's a confession of a glorious truth that just, just ends in mere sound. Well now you see, we must sympathise with the Apostle Paul. He was dealing with an inroad into the Christian faith. The Pharisaic emphasis upon legal works and ceremonial religion was coming in to douse and destroy the faith of simple believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished atoning work. And so he doesn't parley. He just comes straight in and emphasises that if you put yourself under the law as a means of salvation, you're fallen from grace and Christ shall profit you nothing. But there's another side of the story. And Paul would be the first to agree that it is so, and he practically says so in other passages. Because if you quote, say, for the Ephesians chapter 2, by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Like that, and stop. Well then I could go on and say, but it's unto good works which God hath foreordained that we should walk in them. There's your balance. If you emphasize either against the other and by omission, it's untrue. 
Or if you take the epistle of Titus, which says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, chapter 3, you've only got to read two more verses to say, you must strenuously maintain that ours maintain good works. Or if you go to Titus chapter 2, we are to live looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. So you see, you haven't got to go far in Paul's writing to find that he would say the same thing, but he put the emphasis, first of all, on no works, but faith only, as the ground on which justification can ever rest. Then afterwards, if that's a living thing, it will manifest itself like the fruit on a tree. Well now I want to call witnesses from other parts of scripture. I want to ask John, who wrote the gospel and three epistles, uh, to tell us a little bit from his point of view about this question of righteousness and justification and its manifestation in life and action. And I want to call the upon James, who also emphasised particularly this one point of view. So shall we, without more ado, turn for a moment to the first epistle of John. Now if you have your Bibles open at Peter, it's practically ready to turn to the first epistle of John. And the moment you read the first two verses, you know that the point of view of this epistle is now, in this present time, and it's something obvious and manifest and not something secret and hidden. In the Gospel, he commences with, in the beginning was the Word. But he doesn't say that here. He says, that which was from the beginning, not in the beginning, but since the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the Word of Life, for the life was manifested. So you see, his point of view is, not from eternity, but in time, this life was manifested. So I'm going to lift out a little expression, a very small one, which is very characteristic of John's epistle. I should only give you about three of them, but there's quite a number of them buried in this, and if you'd like to trace them through, so much the better. But the first one we will find in chapter 4. And this starts off, verse 17, with another expression that comes over and over again. Verse 17, herein, looking a little bit up this chapter in verse 9, in this was manifested the love of God. Verse 10, herein is love. Oh, he goes on like that all over this epistle. How, how can we tell by this? Or he has the same element of teaching in the first chapter. He says, if we say we walk in the light and we do very contrary, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, the difference between saying and doing all the way down. So he says here in verse 17, herein, or in this, is our love made perfect. Now that's the key. It's not love in its beginnings. It's love in going on to the end. It's an old story with us that the word perfect doesn't mean quite improvement but taking the thing to its legitimate end. And that's in, implicit in the English word. 
P-R-E-S-E-C-T is F-A-C-T. It's making something into a fact. It's taking it to its end. The word in the Greek is teleos and all its derivatives which gives us the word telegram and telescope and television, something a long distance off, something at the end. It's the very word used by Christ on the cross. Would you believe it, the word tele on the cross? What a sanctified word it is actually when he said it is finished. Or when Paul says, I have touched the tape at the end, I have finished my course. So this is love. Going to its legitimate conclusion. Herein is love made perfect. That we may have boldness in the day of judgment. We? We have boldness in the day of judgment? Oh yes. If we know anything of the teaching of the Apostle Paul, we know that is our blessed position. We've only got to read the last section of Romans 8 to get that glorious position emphasised. Who is he that condemneth? And then the answer. So here, that because as he is, now there's the little words, as he is. So are we, not merely in the future glory, but in this world. Oh, you're told some dreadful things about the world in this epistle of John. Dreadful things are said about it. It lies in the wicked one and so on. But even in this world, even in this world where as he is, that's a position to have, isn't it, friends? Well, now let's look down the ages, shall we, from when John wrote these words to the day when Christ will return and glory will be entered. We'll look at the third chapter. The first epistle of John and the third chapter. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. That's the world in which they are, and yet they're as he is. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. There's the second one. As he is, we are. Now, as he is, we shall be. Then. Oh, well, let's eat, drink, be merry, it doesn't matter. Oh, no, that's where we're wrong. What about the interval? What sort of people ought we to be who have him as our foundation and him as our top stone of glory? Surely the legitimate thing is that if he has made us like himself in the presence of the Father through his redeeming work, we should seek, surely, even though we, we continually miss the mark, we should seek in some measure to have his spirit and walk in his steps. It doesn't matter how much we fought and we are pleased the Father, but if we never bother, that is the tragic thing. So we're going to get one more of these. And this is in the second chapter, verse 6. He that saith, now here's the saying instead of the doing, here's the Words, as the poet put it, words to the heat of deeds too cold breath gives. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk as he walked. 
Shall I say that again? As he is, we are. As he is, we shall be. Well, surely in between, as he walked, let us walk. And then our heart fails us, doesn't it? How could we ever hope to walk? Chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, that's where he is, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us. Cleanseth us. The continuous present in the original goes on cleansing us, a day by day cleansing necessary. Like our Saviour said in John 13, He that hath been bathed once forever needeth not, save to rinse his feet in contact with this wilderness walk, but is clean every whit. So now we've got the three. As he is, we are. As he is, we shall be. As he walked, let us walk. Now, how does this focus upon the word righteousness or justification? Just in passing, you do know that the word just and the word right translate the same word in the original. It simply means that the English language can borrow from other sources and you can be Anglo-Saxon and be right or all Rick Manu and you can be, across across a border, I know that, but it's the same element, right, right. Or you can have from the Latin the word just. We, it's a pity in some sense that we cannot say righteous and righteousify. We can say glory and glorify, but we can't say righteous and righteousify, so we have to say righteous and justify. But it's the same word, you see. So, it says in verse 29 of chapter 2, if ye know that he is, here it is again, he is, if ye know that he is righteous, ye know that every one that doeth righteousness is born of him, like father, like son, is a statement, isn't it? And then, if you will notice again, verse 7 of chapter 3, little children. John addresses those to whom he sent this epistle as either little children, as young men, or as older men, or fathers. But he was older than the lot of them, you see. John, as far as we know. But he said, little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. Because the righteous one at the right hand of God is the one who simply says he's righteous, he does righteousness. Now, don't you feel that there's a good deal of insistence in this one epistle on that? He is, he is, he is, and so should you be. Well, now let's come to the um, testimony of James, the epistle of James. And there are some who would, as it were, pit James against Paul. Uh, but Paul would immediately tell them to rightly divide the word of truth. Because you will discover that both Paul and James appeal to the life story of Abraham. They both appeal to the life story of Abraham. But they appeal to two different periods in the life of Abraham. 
Paul takes you back to Genesis 15 and James takes you on to Genesis 22. Now in Genesis 15, Abraham stood there before God, an old man without a child. In Genesis 22, he stood there before God, an older man still, with a child who had been born and grew up. And in between those two events, which are spoken of as declaring him righteous, in between those two, Abraham learned to walk with God. You see, first of all, he stood in the presence of God according to Genesis 15. And God told him. Of course he said, well, what's the good of telling me about I'm going to have all this and all that and all the other, he said to God. He said, I've got no son, I've got no child and this Eliezer is my steward. He's going to be the one who's inherited all I'm going to have. Oh no, said the Lord, no. And he showed him the stars in the firmament and he said, so shall thy seed be. And it says that Abraham believed in the Lord and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now if a thing is yours, it's not counted unto you, it's yours. But that's all he did. He just believed God that quickened him the dead and gave him a son in promise even though it was past age, that's all. He staggered not in unbelief. Now on that, Paul has written Romans the fourth chapter. He discusses that Abraham didn't get it through works. He discusses that it cannot be by merit or wages. He emphasizes that it's by faith. And then he says, and it was reckoned unto him and it was not for his sake only but for ours also if we shall believe that he raised his son from the dead who was delivered because of our offenses and raised again because of our justifying. Complete statement of our acceptance without turning a single finger to do a single work by faith. Now, says James, I've got another bit to say. I'm going to take my text from another part of the scripture. In between Genesis 15 and Genesis 22, in the very next chapters, following Genesis, uh, just about that time when Abraham came out, well, we turned around and gone down to Egypt because there was famine. This man, and uh, uh, when he was on the way to Egypt, he did what some of us have done. He, he suddenly thought to himself, how am I going to get out of this scrape? He says, Sarah, don't you forget you are my sister. You know, that's Abraham. That's the man that God chose. A like infirmity to ourselves. Doesn't justify it, but it shows you. And then when he came out again and came before God, he said to him in the chapter 17, Abraham, walk before me and be thou perfect. Always oh, a new move now. Walk before me. Not merely stand and say, oh yes, I believe. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Be thou perfect, yes. Take this blessed fact that I've called you, that I've given you these promises, that I'm standing by you, I'm going to confirm them and keep my word, take them to their legitimate end. They'll make a transformation in you, Abraham. And he did. He began to walk with God. So much so that he's the one man in the whole of the scriptures that is actually given the title, the friend of God. And there came a day, oh, and then comes the next word. Genesis 22 misunderstood word. God did tempt 
Abraham. Now we've so invested the word tempt with the things of evil that we miss the point. When a person makes an attempt to do a thing, it may be very right and true, that's all. And the word should be translated now for our modern use to try or test, to see whether it was genuine. And he went through that awful ordeal. The very son that had been given him called back again. He still trusted God that quickens the dead. For although he was going there to do that deed, if needs be, he said to these young men, he says, we will return. And Hebrews 11 gives him credit for, for it, that, that he received him back from the dead, in that sense. But he never did it. As soon as he got to the point, then the angel stayed him and said, Now I know, thou fearest God. You see, it's one thing to say, Oh, I believe it's true like that. But it's another thing after that child has been given and all the promises vested in him and the love between them for God said to Abraham take now thy son thine only son Isaac whom thou lovest oh he piled it on so that Abraham was a friend of God for he began to feel what it must have meant for God so to love the world as to give his only son whom he loved better and more than ever Abraham could do. And so Abraham is honoured by the fact that the very word that's used in Genesis 22 is repeated in Romans the 8th chapter when he says, If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son. That word spared not is in Genesis 22. Thou hast not spared or withheld thine son from me. So it's about time we let James speak. Otherwise I shall crowd him out this evening. And that would never do, would it? The epistle of James. Now you'll find that James is immediately on this one word, tempt. We start. James. Most of you know that James is the translation in English of the word Jacob. If you ask me why, well, it, it's a long story and it doesn't matter. But those who followed King James are Jacobites. So it came into our language. James, or Jacob, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. I've never seen anything to indicate that this was returned, not known. Because some people tell you these are lost tribes. Nobody knows where they are. Well, James sent to them, and Peter sent to them, and Paul says, are twelve tribes instantly serving God, instantly serving God, so they were not lost so far as they were concerned. It's because we don't know where they are, we're going to say they're the lost ten tribes. If that's not cheap, what is it? And then a great marvellous system of teaching is built upon that. But that's not our subject. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. Oh, this man's one of these miseries. He's never happy until he's up to his neck in trouble. Is that it? No. Knowing this, that the trying, tempting, or testing of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have a perfecting work. It's got a work to do to take this thing to its logical end. Perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, complete, lacking nothing. If any man lack wisdom, he goes on immediately. 
And then he picks it up again, verse 12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, testing, trying. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. And then coming to chapter 2, he comes to this question of justification by faith, which is the point we are trying to make. He says, verse 14 of chapter 2, What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say? What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say? Here's the emphasis on saying again. He hath faith, and have not works. Now our version says, can faith save him? And you could say, well, now James is contradicting the other part of scripture, that'll never do. But if you look at the original, you'll find it says, can that faith save him? You see, the definite article in the Greek language originally was the demonstrative pronoun, excuse this, won't you? A demonstrative pronoun is pointing, like that. That may not be a very good classical description of a demonstrative pronoun, but you'd know if I said, would you bring me that book? That's a demonstrative pronoun, and no other book will do. So when James says, can that faith save him? He was writing like that, friends. Can that sort of faith save him? And he gives you the illustration immediately. Look here, he says, I'll give you an illustration. Supposing a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and they come to you, and you say to them, depart in peace, be ye warmed to the one who hasn't got any clothing. And to the other one who's had no dinner, you say, and be ye filled. Well, he says, notwithstanding, you give them not those things which are needful to the body. What did it profit? Well, you ask them, he says. Can that do any good? That's a word that never reaches its consummation. It's unperfected. It falls to the ground. You said be warm, but they're not warm, except they're warm in anger. But you can't live on that, friends. So, he says, even faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. We're only coming back to what we just said. That a word is dead if it ends as a word. It's only a living word when it resolves itself into the corresponding action. So he says, all your talk about being justified by faith without works is just getting behind and hiding behind an untruth. One of the things we've got to so watch, friends, is that folks do not take the very truth of God and by a twist in this direction make it mean just the very opposite. James is not in any sense opposing Paul. He's only opposing those who are making Paul stress upon faith without works, a means of living by license and latitude. Now, if you go to his great epistles which emphasise justification by faith without works, that's Romans and Galatians, you'll find that after he'd said some shocking things about the law of God apparently on the surface, when he gets through near to the end, he says to the Galatians, are you going to translate the word liberty into license? Tell me, which one of the commandments of God will you break because you're now not under the law but under Christ? Are you going to bear false witness against your neighbour because you're not under law? This is the very spirit of the law of God. Is love to God and love to man. 
trouble is you can't do it in order to be saved, but it should be a guide afterwards. However poor your response may be. So Galatians doesn't end before it tells you that's the truth. And when Paul reaches Romans the seventh chapter, he says, the commandment is holy and just and good and spiritual, but I am carnal. That's the reason why it's no good to me. It condemns me. I need to be delivered from it. But of itself, it's of God. So he says here, it's all very well to say you're justified. But if you're justified, you've been exonerated in the court of God. You've been taken into the family of faith. And there should be, according to John's epistle, if you are righteous, you will do righteousness as he does. Although you may make a miserable failure of it many times, the very fact of doing it or attempting it is all that God expects in this life. And so we've got now these words, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Then he has a complicated argument which is a great difficulty to, to disentangle. Yeah, yeah, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show thee my faith by my works. In the next one it's a bit easier to understand his argument. Thou believest that there is one God. Well, that's truth. One God in the scriptures. It was the great basis of the whole teaching of Moses with regard to the deity. There is one God. Well, he says, thou doest well. The devils believe that, but they tremble, they're not saved. Merely believing that there's one God doesn't take you far enough. That's merely a, a mental asset to some truth. Well, you're not saved because you say, oh, I believe there's one God. Oh no, that's not enough. Now he turns to Abraham. As I've said, Paul goes to Genesis 15. James goes to Genesis 22, and there's a good number of years in between. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? When he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Was not our father justified by faith before Abraham received Isaac at all? Yes. But after he received him, wasn't he justified by the works that followed? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works? Here comes the word again, friends. We're waiting for it. And by works was faith brought to its legitimate end. Was made perfect. You see, if Abraham had held back and failed there, the faith that he had at the beginning would never have reached its goal. But blessed be God, he did. And so his faith was perfected. John says your love is perfected. And every part of God's gift to you can be perfected. Even the word holiness is perfected according to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. You think you can never perfect holiness, but God says yes. Cleanse yourself perfecting holiness. It's one thing to say, oh, I've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb and carry on alarming with a, a life that discredits him. But to perfect that cleansing is to begin to cleanse yourself from all filthiness of flesh and spirit. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Two sides, you see. So here he says, Seest thou how faith wrought with his works? There's no idea of works independent of faith. 
There are three things that underlie all Paul's doctrinal teaching. Faith, hope, and our version says charity. That's because it borrowed from the Latin and it ceased to have its meaning. Charitable organisations are one thing, whether there's much love in them is another. I was brought up by a father who loathed the word charity because of some of the things that were done in its name. And to this day there is a proverb as cold as charity. I don't know what young people do nowadays, it's so long ago since I ever attempted to say anything like it, but I can't believe even today that if I could listen to what those courting couples are saying to themselves just down there, he's saying, I feel very charitably disposed to you this evening. At least I could tell you something better than that. <laughs> no, so we'll leave the word charity to itself and put the word love back, which it is. Faith, hope, love. And this is the greatest of these, love, in one place. But when you go to the Thessalonians, he said, what I'm rejoicing is, I've heard of your work of faith and your labour of love and your patience of hope. Oh, he said, they're not dead letters with you. They're all living and vivid. Your faith is working. Your love is labouring. Your hope is giving you that patience to endure and wait, which of course hope must do. You're expecting, so in the interval, you're either impatiently waiting, as I so often do over many things, and told to be quiet, or you're patiently enduring until the moment comes. I was very moved, Mr. Morton wrote to me, I had to write to him and say, I don't agree with you, my translation is entirely different, and I sent him the reasons why, and then he wrote a wonderful letter telling me how he obliged to alter all he thought about it, and thanked me for my patience with him. I've never had anybody thank me for that yet, so I must be improving, friends, so that's, I don't know, it may be well for me. However, <coughs> and the scripture, notice this, the scripture was fulfilled, which said, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. Did you get that? He says, Genesis 15 was fulfilled in Genesis 22. It was started in Genesis 15, and it was filled to the full when that man did what God told him years afterwards. So it's a living thing, it's a growing thing. It's first the blade and then the ear and then the full cord in the ear. Justification by faith is the root and the works that accompany it are the fruit. And the scripture says, by their fruit, not by their root, by their fruit ye shall know them. And the scripture was fulfilled which saith Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness and on top of that the extra bit. He was called a friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Do you see that, he says? I hope you do. Because there's no, no conflict between the two. It's just what should be. And then he just does another little jump to an example. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot. What a difference between Abraham, the friend of God, and Rahab, the harlot. What a mixed up company they are. Oh, we are a mixed company. He doesn't beat about the bush. Poor Rahab was in need of her saviour. So was Abraham. So was I. So was the writer of those hymns, heart's hymns. He said, salvation is free. It was given to Mary, Manasseh, and me. 
So, they're in good company, these two, Abraham and Rahab. She was justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. We may not be able to piece that together so well, but it's written. For, here's the final word, for, as the body without the spirit is dead. So, faith without works is dead also. Now, I do not believe that there is any need to pit James against Paul. There are some who say that. And there are some who misquote the words accredited to Martin Luther. They say that he called James an epistle of straw. But they don't quote all that Martin Luther said. The full quotation, I cannot give it to you exactly, was this. That when it's a matter of an, of an epistle, which is going to teach men justification by faith without works, Galatians is the epistle in contrast of which James is but an epistle of straw. That's the way he put it. Well, if you're going to teach the beginning, you go to an epistle to the beginning. And when you want to lead them on to the perfecting at the end, you come to this one that puts the other side in, you've got a perfect balance. Well now, I've already mentioned that there is a, an emphasis on the word works. Shall we just make sure that one or two of these passages are known? I've quoted Titus. Will you turn to the epistle of Titus? He says at the close of chapter 1, verse 16, here's the one who professes a lot. They profess that they know God. I don't say they're like the devils who say there's one God and yet tremble, but they profess that they know God. But in works, they deny him. You see, it's one thing to say and it's another thing to be or to do. So there's a possibility that a professor of believing in God can deny him. And then we have, in verse 10 of chapter 2, that servants, they are not to purloin, but to show all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour in all things. Adorn it. You can't invent the doctrine. It's given. But you can beautify it. You can adorn it. You can commend the love of God or otherwise. And at the end of verse 14, they're zealous of good works. And then chapter 3, verse 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. But verse 8. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. Well, our time is practically out. So I'm just adding to this tape recording these words. While much more could be said on this vital doctrine of justification by faith, the subject of Christian fundamentals is so vast that some element of proportion must be admitted. We try in this series we bring this series, dealing with justification, to an end with this evening. But, I'm just mentioning to those listeners who might feel that there's much more to be said. 
that our brother Stuart Allen has made a very careful and faithful commentary on the epistle to the Romans. And they are found in the set of tape recordings and I commend them to anyone who might feel there's a certain amount of things that are lacking in what I've said. They could be supplemented there. And if any of those who are listening would like to have in book form an analysis of Paul's mighty epistle to the Romans with a structure of every part of it complete from one end to the other and a faithful exposition as far as God gives grace, I commend to you the just, the book called Just and the Justifier. And to make it complete, in case anyone is listening to this who is not acquainted with our works, I will tell you how uh, where you can obtain them. You can obtain them from Leonard A. Canning, 40 Tumblewood Road, Banstead, Surrey, in England, or if you're in America, from Oscar Baker, Truth for Today, capital R, number 2, Warsaw, Indiana. And may the Lord give us grace to rejoice in being justified by grace, justified by faith, and justified by works, all blessedly, harmoniously, together.